you were around here is treated like a god. I mean, how can you ever find out what he could really do? I don't want this to be the high point of his life. I've seen him, the real sad ones. They sit around the rest of their lives talking about the glory days when they were 17 years old. You know, most people would kill to be treated like a god just for a few moments. Welcome to Keeping the Nostalgia Alive, the Indiana Basketball Memory Show. I am your host, Billy Powell. Uh, hopefully you're listening to this at keepingthenostalgialive.podbean.com. That's keepingthenostalgialive, all one word, dot podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. You can also peruse our site and uh, listen to over 150 interviews of of uh, Indiana basketball legends, those that have played, coached, officiated, or just enjoy the great game of basketball out of the state of Indiana. Uh, today with me is a, uh, it's a pleasure today because, of course, uh, I, I graduated from Broderpool. I'm going to be made fun of here once I introduce the, the gentleman that also played at Broderpool. I graduated Broderpool in 1986, uh, a little bit later than the gentleman we're going to have on today. And, of course, that gym there at Broderpool High School is dark now. There will be no more basketball games played there at, as of right now. <clears throat> and he was an outstanding uh, basketball player at Broderpool High School, had his number retired at Broderpool High School, was hanging on the wall there in the gymnasium, which at this point in time we don't know what they're doing with the stuff that's inside the gymnasium. We would all like to know that. He also is a member of the uh, Butler University Bulldog Hall of Fame, uh, scored uh, almost 800 points at Broderpool, and you, depending on who you're talking to at Butler University, scored over 1,000 or 999 points. So uh, uh, the great Wally Cox is with us today. Uh, Mr. Cox, I know you told me to call you Wally. Thank you for, so much for taking some time out of your busy day to, to, to chat with us and to help keep the nostalgia alive and talk about the great game of basketball. Well, I'll tell you, it's a great game. <laughs> it's been great to me all my life. And uh, it's it's still just an important part of my family. So. Uh, who 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 introduced you to the game of basketball? And tell us a little bit about your family and where you grew up there in Indianapolis. Well, my dad uh, was John Lloyd Cox. Uh, most people knew him by Lloyd uh, later on. He was also John when he was younger, playing at Russellville. And he was a marvelous uh, basketball player uh, from all accounts. Uh, of course, I wasn't a fertilized egg cell yet when he was playing high school ball <laughs> back in the late uh, late teens. But uh, I got write-ups and everything else uh, that were available. And uh, he used to be a marvelous baseball player, too. He was one of the guys who could pitch a game right-handed one time and left-handed the next game. And he was a basketball player that went on to Wabash and he was a good all-around athlete and uh, broke his shoulder right off the bat in football practice out there at Wabash and uh, so that finished his career there and he went to work and uh, worked at Allison Division of General Motors in Indianapolis but uh, I used to play baseball with him and uh, shot baskets uh, down there at 17th and College, which was uh, right there in the hotbed downtown Indianapolis. And uh, so anyway, that's kind of what got me started was my dad was uh, my dad was my first key to baseball, basketball, and uh, later on it's it's really been beneficial. Everybody that I knew that uh, he grew up with too. Did you guys? So have that's a- where I got. Did you guys have a hoop? That's where I got my start. Did you guys have a Did you guys have a basketball hoop at your house? Well, yeah, I built my own. It was in uh, right in my backyard. Uh, we bought a four by four, 
and sunk it in the ground and uh, put up some, uh, made a backboard and nailed it up on the, uh, on the post. And I got my first rim and uh, net, and we put that sucker up there, and it was on kind of a, a rough gravel surface that we had some gravel dessert, uh, delivered there to our house. And that was our first basketball court at home. And then uh, I lived one block from School 27, and uh, I played basketball over there on those courts, and they were gravel also. <laughs> there weren't very many asphalt courts around. Uh, I found out where they all were, though, uh, as I got into junior high, and I took my bicycle, and I went around all the hot courts. And that's why I played with all the uh, good black players in downtown Indianapolis and uh, all the good white players that lived down there around where I did. And uh, so that's that was my first basketball court on my at my house, and the ones that I played on were not, you know, the premier ones that these kids have nowadays. But I sneaked into the Ipalco Hall, which was the Indianapolis Power and Light Company's basketball gymnasium over at 16th in Alabama in downtown Indianapolis. I'd sneak in there. Uh, the custodian would let me come in there and play, and then once in a while I could get some other guys in. I sneaked in the Naval Armory out of by Riverside in Indianapolis on the near northwest side. And uh, so I, I knew how to slip into some of the good hardwood floors back when I was in junior high. And uh, so then when I went out to Broad Ripple, that was that was really nice because they had a good gym. And, and you went there to school, and, uh, of course, you were there when they put in the uh, new gym, weren't you, Billy? Uh, actually, no, I was lucky enough to be there with the, uh, the Cracker Box gym so that, that you played in. So, no, I, I, can, I, can, <laughs> I can almost see you playing, or, uh, playing in that. So we, 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 have, we have a little bit of the same memories with, that, uh, with the gymnasium that uh, uh, we played oh, yeah. in and you played in. Yeah, and the coach there, Gene Ring, at Broad Ripple, when you were there, uh, he called me up. And had my wife and and me out to Broad Ripple when they put in that new gym, and I got to throw up the opening tip at that game, and boy, that was uh, that was really an honor. So your your old coach at Broad Ripple, Gene Ring, uh, meant a lot to me because he was very thoughtful in uh, bringing me out there and let me have that honor of throwing up that opening tip. <laughs> for their first game out there. You, you know, I know we're we're getting ahead of way ahead of ourselves, but what were your feelings when you found out the school was closing or, or did, were your feelings more of you went through your memories or was was it kind of with Broderpool closing, was it with the gym, the original gym being torn down kind of uh, 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 you know, did that it, it, did, was that kind of the same way of of the school actually closing? Well, no, the closing of the school this year was uh, that that was that was really the worst. Uh, when they decided to close Broad Ripple High School, I thought it was a mistake, and I still do. Uh, but your friend Jack Hogan, who uh, went to Broad Ripple also back in the '60s, he graduated, and you know uh, Jack, I think personally. Correct. But Jack Jack Hogan and I have been serving on the scholarship committee out there called the Frank Baird Memorial Scholarship. And uh, over the years, 
people have donated and donated and donated to that fund until it became the largest endowed scholarship in Indianapolis public school system. And uh, we have given out over $140,000, almost 150000 to graduating seniors at Broad Ripple over the years. And that's unheard of at all the other Indianapolis public schools. It just so happens that Mr. Baird was so beloved as the coach at Broad Ripple way before Gene Ring was out there. Uh, Mr. Baird was uh, quite a man, and I got to play for him when I came out of the eighth grade and went to Broad Ripple. But uh, that was disappointing when they closed that because Jack Hogan and I are co-chairman of the Baird Scholarship Committee. And uh, so this year, we we have given out a record amount of money this year. Each year, uh, Jack and I, together with our committee of four or five other people, we have given these seniors a little bit of a kickstart on their college by awarding anywhere from uh, four to $8,000 a year in scholarships. Well, uh, this year, since it was our last year, uh, Jack and I called the committee together and we decided to uh, uh, break the bank. So we gave out $32,000 this year to graduating wow. seniors. So uh, eight kids got $4,000 a piece and this was just about uh, three weeks ago. And uh, I was honored to be able to go out there in Mr. Baird's name and present the scholarships. And this is it was really a tearjerker this year, Billy, because, uh, you know, being our last uh, hurrah for our scholarships out there. And uh, so that's that kind of brought a tear to my eye at that presentation, even though the guidance director handed out the certificates at my suggestion because she was so instrumental in helping us find these kids and interview them and all. And so she presented the certificates and I stood beside her for the last time and uh, so it was it was really a sad time because Broad Ripple meant a lot to me over the years because it drug me out of the inner city uh, I wasn't supposed to go to Broad Ripple I was supposed to go to Arsenal Tech downtown my whole 8th grade class went there except me I wrote a letter to the school board and asked them if I could go to Broad Ripple because I had a brother out there and they let me go. And uh, I didn't tell them the real reason in my letter to the school board. The real reason I wanted to go to Broad Ripple was to play basketball for uh, Frank Baird. He was an All-American at Butler and was the coach for about 40 years out of Broad Ripple. And I got to go out there and play for Mr. Baird. And uh, I was the only sophomore on the varsity. And he saw something in me. I don't know what it was, but he saw something in me <laughs> that was... Uh, that was important and uh, so I got to play for Mr. Baird and ironically I got to play for his college team at Butler uh, three years later after I was a sophomore when I graduated uh, Butler came after me and that's how I ended up at Butler well, well, Coach ba Coach Baird is one of the few people that are in the Indiana Basketball Hall of Fame the uh, Indiana Football Hall of Fame and the Indiana Baseball <laughs> Hall of Fame correct? and the Indiana officials Referees Hall of Fame. Wow. <laughs> I think he's in that too. They have they have a separate ring of honor for the referees and officials for the IHS, the uh, 
Hall of Fame also. And I, I think he's in, he's in just about everything he did. He became a heck of an official after he uh, retired from uh, uh, coaching baseball and basketball. He actually retired from basketball after my sophomore year and uh, wanted to just coach baseball from then on. So I got to play baseball for him, too. But he was a, he was a great man and a great person. And, boy, for me to end up, uh, again, I was in the right place at the right time because uh, a guy named Bobby Young was the chairman of the Frank Baird Committee about 20 years ago. And uh, he called me and said, Wally, you've got to head up this committee because we need you in there. And I said, oh, no, I deferred him and I put him off. I finally called him back and I said, okay, Bobby, I'm ready. So uh, that's when I took over the committee. And then later on, I got Jack Hogan on there, and boy, he's been a godsend on the Frank Baird Scholarship Committee. So that's that's the memory of Broad Ripple that stands out the most. Uh, Wally, what uh, were you young enough, or were, did you follow the '45 team and their march to the Final Four and to the final game against Bossy? <laughs> well, yeah. As a matter of fact, I was uh, I was born in '36, so I was nine years old. But I had a sister out at Broad Ripple. And my brother hadn't started there yet. He didn't start until 46. But the 45 team, oh, yeah, I, I think I could recall the starting five on, on that team pretty well. They had, they had guys like uh, Allen and Chafee and uh, Chapman and Steinhardt, Gossman, Dietz. <laughs> I could just I'd go down the whole lineup <laughs> because I was, a, I was a fan. I used to just go out to all their practices and I just I hung out I was just a nine-year-old kid at the time and and ten-year-old kid and I'd just hang out and uh Broder pulls a 45-minute streetcar ride back in those days but uh, I still got out there and knowing my brother was going to be going out there and playing ball too but I knew that 45 team real well I did not know the players personally because you know they were older guys and I just hung out. <laughs> well, and uh, but they were good, boy. That was a good team, and they lost to Bossy of Evansville in the afternoon game, as you probably know from your record book. Uh, and it was tough. And I was there on the radio listening to it at home, and boy, I, I cried and I cried because they lost by two points, I think, to Bossy of Evansville. <laughs> and I, I'm uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think was not Max Allen. Wasn't he the first Trester Award winner? Yes, he was. He was a little dinky guard for Bossy and Henry, like a junkyard dog. And boy, he was tough. <laughs> he deserved it. He deserved it. So, so what was it like? Were you, were you, you know, it, it's the beginning of your freshman year. You're going to Broderpool High School. You got to take a little trek to get there. Um, uh, were you excited about going to Broderpool High School? And how? And give us a little rundown of your athletic activities leading up to uh, basketball, and tell us a little bit about uh, baseball. Well. I played, uh, when I was in the eighth grade, I was on a kind of a city championship team baseball out at Riverside. My, sounds kind of funny, but I was born in, at, uh, in the 17th College neighborhood, but I took my bike across uh, 16th Street to the west side to Victory Field. And I hung out at the Indianapolis Indians ballpark a lot. I shagged baseballs for the Indians. They'd practice in the afternoons, the professional team would, AAA. And I'd go over there and catch fly balls and all that stuff. And 
when these guys got new mitts, a lot of times they'd give me their old mitt. If they crack a Louisville slugger bat out there in batting practice, hell, they'd give me the uh, baseball bat. So I'd take it uh, over to my house. I'd put the baseballs that, uh, that I accumulated from them into a couple of five-gallon buckets, and I threw the, the mitts in there, too, because all the neighborhood guys depended on me to have the equipment to go over in the field and play ba- play baseball. <laughs> so anyway, that's that's what I did in baseball, was hanging out at Victory Field, and I went right up the road then about a mile or two to Riverside and played baseball in a league up there. Now, this is all when I'm in the seventh grade and eighth grade before I got to Broad Ripple. And uh, so I was exposed to some great baseball playing up there. It was the top league in town was up at Riverside. And so I got to play baseball, and uh, I basketball was uh, <clears throat> the other time-consuming thing because I'd go over to Lockfield Gardens uh, right down the street from Victory Field where all the black guys played basketball, and uh, they said, Cox, you ought to go to Attic. You can be the first white team. <laughs> and it was it was really pretty good because I also played basketball with uh, one of the gyms I sneaked into and then became a member of the boys club was 16th of Delaware at the top club there that was on 16th all in that route across town that I always got to on my bike and all the cathedral guys hitchhiked there at 16th Street in Delaware. And I got to know a bunch of those cathedral guys. And they said, hey, Cox, you got to come to cathedral. So I was trying, I was being recruited <laughs> by the black guys to come to attics and uh, the, the uh, Catholic guys to come to cathedral. And I told the, the uh, cathedral guys, I said, you know what? I don't think my dad would go for my, wanting to co- go to cathedral, even though I could walk over to 14th and Meridian to the old cathedral high school. I said, uh, I don't know if he'd go for that because he's a big uh, member of the Masonic Lodge. <laughs> <laughs> and back then, and back then, the Masons uh, and the KSC guys, uh, well, they used to get together once a year and sing. They had uh, good choirs and they'd sing together, and they had a golf tournament once a year. But other than that, uh, it was the uh, it was the hillbilly Masons. Uh, against the macro snapper cathedral guys. Now, I mean, it, this was back in, uh, you know, it was really neighborhood, and everybody got along. We had everything in my neighborhood. You talk about, you could be Japanese, you could be Mexican, you could be Caucasian, you could be black. We had a pretty good mix down there at 17th of college. And uh, so I was playing ball. hope I'm not getting too far ahead of you here. No, you're good. That's where all that started before high school even. So the exposure to sports in downtown Indianapolis was phenomenal. I was the right place at the right time in the early 50s. What a time to grow up. And uh, then they get to play for Mr. Baird and then go and play for Mr. Hinkle. you know, I I was blessed. <laughs> so 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 I have a I have a couple questions for you here because but but let me give you a little bit of backstory. Um, I, before gro- uh, moving up into the Broderpool area, 56th and Kessler, um, I spent uh, some time of my life uh, down off of Winfield, off of 16th Street and Winfield. And, uh, of course, Bush Stadium was right down the road. 
Uh, and uh, every time we would go to baseball games, when we moved up to Broadway, my grandfather would take me to baseball games, and we would pass that Riverside Park. Um, uh, number one, tell me a little bit. Give me give me some memories of Riverside Park from you guys, because it was you know this was in the 70s and it was shut down, and you could you could still see the roller coaster and stuff like that. And then also I want to know about baseball. Did you get to see Bob Feller pitch at, uh, at what you called it Victory Field? Of course, I call it Bush Stadium. But did you get to see Bob Feller while you watched any Indians games? Well, yeah, him and Herb Score. Oh, gee, what. Of course, the Indians, you know, went through several farm clubs. They were they were uh, White Sox. They were Pirates. They were Reds. You know, their uh, their franchise was affiliated with several major league teams over all the years. And during that time, when they came to Victory Field for exhibition games and stuff, I got to see the the Fowlers. <laughs> And I got to see the scores, and I got—I could tell you the back when I was a kid, I could tell you the Indians. I could start with the catcher; it was Gant and Turner, and they had Fleming at first, and they had English at third, Pete Castellone at short, Tom Saffel in center field, Ted Beard in right, I, uh, Frank Kalen. Uh, I knew all these guys because of all of that stuff back there and the memories of Riverside then because I played with teams up there Riverside was a big amusement park with some fabulous baseball and softball fields and uh, I remember the baseball had six diamonds numbered one through six and the feature game for usually on diamond one which looked right over amusement park diamond two they were the two feature uh, places, and uh, but the amusement park then, my sisters used to hang out there, my older sisters, because they had a bunch of friends, boyfriends and girlfriends. They all hung out to Riverside Park because of my grandparents living down there. We practically lived at my grandparents in the summertime because of all the ball playing and the amusement park up there. And the amusement park had... Uh, two great big roller coasters one called the Flash and one called the Thriller and uh, they had uh, the thing that was my favorite was the Dodgem you drove these cars and smashed into people and uh, it was next door to the Naval Armory if you recall mm-hmm. Billy that was a big white building there and that's where all my uh, uh, older friends that were in the Naval Reserve went there for Navy meetings and then they would later go into the active Navy, like my brother and, and brother-in-law did later. So th- those were my memories of, of Riverside Park as the baseball uh, feature place for amateur baseball and the amusement park. up. That amusement park was fantastic. <laughs> and they had a big roller rink, too. My, my sisters always met all their boyfriends, and they had so many boyfriends, I couldn't even count them all. But they always met at the roller rink up there at Riverside. <laughs> uh, I mean, what was your, was it, I, I take it that both basketball and baseball were just right there side by side on your favorite sports to play? Well, baseball initially was, uh, you know, because I was playing so young in the fifth grade, sixth grade, and seventh. My dad and I used to, I told you about my dad, we'd stand out there warming up with all these mitts and baseballs I had from the Indians. 
we'd be out there warming up before I went over to pitch in the, my D league, C league, B league. I just kept moving up, <laughs> and we'd go out there and warm up, and I'd say, "Okay, let's." Uh, we play burnout. Uh, that's where you'd throw the ball so hard you'd try to knock the guy catching the ball, try to knock him on his fanny <laughs> with a fastball. Well, my dad could really throw. And uh, so before we'd start throwing, uh, I'd say, okay, which mitt do you want? He says, I don't care. So I'd throw him one, so he'd throw left-handed to me. Uh, or I'd throw him the other one, he'd throw right-handed to me. I tried to throw left-handed like he was trying to teach me, like left and right, because he was so ambidextrous. <laughs> I said, uh, I could not throw left-handed. I, I told my wife, I said, hey, I should like you to throw. I should like a girl left-handed, but I could really burn it right-handed. So my dad and I played burnout, and uh, that was that was how we got started in baseball. But then later, as I got pretty good in basketball, then my first preference became basketball because of all the exposure to those addicts guys that I was playing around with and ended up in college at Butler years later uh, a couple of those addicts guys came out there at Butler and I got to play with Shedrick Mitchell and Bill Scott off of that uh, championship addicts team so you know it just goes on and on and on Billy of uh, the great things that I was exposed to when I was a kid uh, you know things we weren't rich or anything like that. My dad had to work two jobs. We had a we had a nice little house there at Seventeenth and Broadway, but uh, you know it was tough. Uh, right after the war, we're talking about uh, after the defense plants and all uh, shut down in forty five and forty six, a lot of them kept going. And people worked at Allison's, they worked at the Chevrolet plant, they worked at Ford, Chrysler, and so on, mostly in industry. So when I got through playing ball and all, and I got a chance to go to college, that again, here I was, blessed for being in the right spot at the right time. And Mr. Hinkle came to my house down on Broadway, and that was a recruiting visit I'll never forget. And so I ended up in the right place then too. Now, so, now, to for, say which one's the favorite? <laughs> basketball became my favorite, even though later. Baseball led me to senior softball, which I played to uh, 77. <laughs> you, you know, what's funny is I, I love doing this stuff. Let me just interject a real quick story. It was eighth grade at Merle Seidner, number 59, right there at Keystone and Kessler. And this guy called me into his office. And one, he asked me what I wanted to do with my life. And, of course, it was Bill Scott who was asking me this. So, you know, oh it, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of most of the people I talk to about their memories in the game of basketball, it's kind of like six degrees of separation. It's fun to hear, you you know, you mentioned names that, you know, at the time I'm like, who in the heck is, who, Mr. Scott, I, I had no clue that he played at Attics at that point in time or played at Butler at that time. And it's really interesting and neat to, to, to hear the stories about that. Well, Scott, uh, just for your information, he was our sixth man on that team uh, when Bobby Plump and I were the two guards our senior year at Butler. Plump and I were the guards, and we had uh, Guzik, Grieve, and Pennington up in front. Our sixth man was Bill Scott, and Scotty was fantastic. So when he was a senior and all of us guys graduated, he took over, and I think Scotty, I don't know for sure, but I think he averaged around 18 or 19 points a game his senior year then. 
because he took over the guard spot that uh, Pump and I uh, vacated. So Scott was great. I tried, I played ball with him later, and he and I were still, we were still going up and down the court at age 50 out there at Fall Creek Y out on Indiana Avenue. We were playing together on a church team out there, and one of the guys uh, uh, on uh, that team was Del Harris. Uh, you probably know Del Harris, or know of him. Uh, coach in uh, Houston and all that stuff, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, I think his I think his uh, born name was Delmar. Was it Delmer? Delmer? Delmer Harris? But he went by Dell. Yep. Yeah, Del Harris. Yeah. Delmar was his real name. However, I knew him. I didn't even know him by Dell because all, all the guys on our team called him Sonny. <laughs> Son- yeah, he had a nickname. Uh, that's an inside one. I guess maybe you haven't heard that. <laughs> no, but, I uh, haven't. Yeah, that was, he was Sonny Harris. Yeah, I didn't even know him by Dell. Hell, this Dell thing came up later. Somebody <laughs> said somebody he was coaching here, assistant coach or something with the <clears throat> the uh, cloud that used to coach at Cathedral years ago, and then ended up down there by Houston. Uh, he was uh, when they said Dell uh, Harris, I said I had to do a uh, double take on it because I said, well, that's Sonny. <laughs> <laughs> But he coached with uh, McLeod, and he he's got Indianapolis Cathedral background. Right. So anyway, that isn't that something? Yeah. All the coincidental stuff. And uh, but uh, Billy, you know, every day I I I count my blessings because people talk about uh, how tough it was during the early fifties and all. Well, yeah, it was tough. But I'll tell you, all those black guys I knew and all that we were going through those tough times for them, okay, I was blessed that I had a little more, uh, few things going my way than what they did. They had to really work their tails off to get some breaks. And I was with them all that time. The boy won the 1955 team for Addicts won that state championship. Things in Indianapolis started turning around for the blacks. And I was thrilled to death for him because a lot of those guys I just recently I went out to Dearborn Gym and uh, Will Huggins from the Indianapolis Star had a bunch about 10 of us out there the old Dearborn Gym on the east side and uh, he had uh, Jerry Harkness that uh, played for the Indiana Pacers and was a feature guy on the on uh, just recently on the NBA All-Star uh, get together well, Harkness was out there. He played at Dearborn here in Indianapolis, too. And uh, one of the black guys that played on the national championship team at Loyola of Chicago, and, boy, he came down here, and uh, he's been a stalwart in the Indianapolis community down here. And uh, so, you know, it just goes on and on and on and on. Hard to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, when um, Coach Hinkle came to see you, uh, did he bring mayonnaise sandwiches with him? <laughs> oh, did you hear something about this? You're asking a question about that interview. I mean, Hinkle, you talk about a high-pressure recruiter. He was not. <laughs> he came, I mean, this is six weeks before college started okay this was july of my senior year i've graduated i'm going down to miami of florida to play for bruce hale bruce hale was well 
later on, he became Rick Barry's father-in-law. <laughs> but Bruce Hale played for Indianapolis pro team up here, okay? And uh, so anyway, he kicked off the Miami of Florida basketball program. Well, he recruited me to come down there to school. So I was going to go to Miami of Florida <coughs> six weeks before school started, and I'd already bought my Florida shirts with the flowers and uh, the surfers on my <laughs> short sleeve shirts. I was all I, I looked like Florida boy. I was ready to go south. Well, anyway, six weeks before school started, Hankel calls and uh, asks if he could come by the house and uh, to my dad. He said, "Well, sure." And so anyway. He came knocking at the door down at 17th Broadway, and uh, in he came. Oh, hi, Lloyd, he says to my dad, and Thelma, and my mom, and hi, Wally. And uh, into the kitchen we went and sat down at the kitchen table. And uh, my mom got the coffee pot out, and she got uh, some, I think she had a sugar cream pie or some kind of piece of pie. Anyway... Those guys started talking, my dad and Tony Hinkle. Well, they start talking about uh, fishing, farming, uh, hunting, and all this stuff. And they talked and talked and talked and talked. It must have been 45 minutes or an hour. And they're drinking coffee, eating pie, and I'm sitting there at the table with them, and I'm kind of holding my chin and thinking, Geez, wonder why Mr. Hankel came here to just talk farming and fishing and hunting. <laughs> I thought maybe he was going to talk to me about basketball. <laughs> well, then finally, he finally said, "Now, Wally," <laughs> he leaned over my way and he said, "We got a nice school out of Butler." Now, this is his. I'm getting back to his high pressure sales talk. Okay, <laughs> it took him about three minutes. He said, "Wally, we got a nice school out of Butler." Uh, I've seen you play, and I've talked to Mr. Baird, and he said, uh, I got some guy named Plump coming up from Milan and, uh, for the backcourt, and he said, he's about 5'10", 5'11". He said, but I need a tall guard. And he said, I've seen you play. And he said, uh, I need a tall guard, and I got a spot for you. If you change your mind and decide not to go to Miami, Florida, I'd like to talk to you. And he said, uh, but we've got a new scholarship program out there called the Grant and Aid, which will pay your room and board, books, fees, and tuition for four years, and all you got to do is make your grades and keep your nose clean. <laughs> so anyway, he said, if, if you change your mind, give me a call. And with that, uh, Mr. Hinkle departed. And... Uh, left it with me and my dad and mom you know if I'm interested in Butler give him a call well with the new grant and aid program which he said the board was going to vote that fall on he said I know they're going to pass it but he said uh, you and Plump Raycraft you guys would uh, get a scholarship out of that uh, pool of scholarships we got allocated okay so anyway I talked to my dad and mom, and my dad said something that stuck with me. He said, Wally, you got to decide. Do you want to go to Miami or Florida to a big school? Do you want to be a little dog in a big school? Or would you rather go to Butler and be a big dog in a small school? 
because Butler only had 1,800 students then. And I, that kind of hit with me that, uh, well, you know, I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of leaning towards that uh, small school being more important to the program for sure. So anyway, I called Mr. Hinkle, and that was the end of that. I was blessed again. I was the right place, right time. Scholarships coming in, and Mr. Hinkle wanted me. So that was the uh, that was the recruiting by Mr. Hinkle. Three minutes. And that's all it took. <laughs> what what did coach What did Coach Hale have that uh, uh, attracted people? Because he got you know he he almost had Rick Mount come down there to Miami. Of course, he had Junior G. Mm-hmm. He had uh, Rick Jones, uh, nineteen sixty three Mister Basketball. I mean, Rick Barry. What uh, did was it a personality that he had or 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 what? Well, you know, Rick Barry became his son in law. Right. He married the daughter. <laughs> So, yeah, those guys had good reason to go down there. Because, my God, Bruce Hale was, uh, I think he played at Santa Clara and uh, was all this, all that, and pro here in Indianapolis. And anyway, he, somehow or other, he came and talked to me and uh, got, I went out to the state fairgrounds. Uh, and I even sold programs out there, I think, in the first part of August. Uh, before, right, so the Hinkle thing was right there, end of July, first part of August. I can't tell you the exact dates on that, surprisingly, but I can't tell you the exact dates. But, uh, yeah, I, I actually sold programs out there with a guy named McDermott from Hartford City, uh, and he was going to go down there, too. And a guy named Ronnie Fox that played at Howe here in Indianapolis. We went down there on spring break. And what attracted me to Bruce Hale was on that spring break of my senior year, you could actually go to a school and more or less try it out, okay? Uh, four of us guys from Indiana went down there. And he gave us one of these freshman players. And we've scrimmaged the varsity down there on spring break. And we beat we should beat the crap out of them. <laughs> so he offered all of us a scholarship. That's that's how that started. So that was, uh, I hadn't even talked to Butler or anybody at that point. You know, spring break was probably in the March, 1st of April, my senior year. And uh, I was down there playing basketball in the heat of Miami, but in their air-conditioned gym that they were making a move toward making a basketball name. They were a football school. So they weren't much. Bruce Hale was supposed to go in there and, and uh, cause a lot of excitement in basketball, which he did later as he moved along. So that's how uh, the Bruce Hale thing came along. So, uh, Wally, tell us a little bit about the atmosphere. Uh, we're going to get to Butler here in just a second, but tell us a little bit about the atmosphere at a Broderpool game, and um, uh, tell us some of your favorite memories playing at the Broderpool gym or, you know, your uh, your years at Broderpool playing basketball. <laughs> well, uh, like George Carlin used to say, do you remember some of those old cheers? <laughs> well, anyway... I remember locomotive, locomotive, steam, 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 and two bits, four bits, six bits is off. All that stuff that uh, they don't cheer about anymore. You know, they're doing other stuff. But those were those were a lot of great memories there. Uh, Quadruple was uh, 
with some of the old time uh, cheers and uh, what a basketball game meant socially because parties and everything else were planned around the high school game. And uh, the gym was always packed jammed. My mom and dad were always right up there in the first row of the old, I don't know if you recall it brought up on the old balcony up there that overlooked mm-hmm. the uh, gym floor. Well, they were always on the front row up there with some of the other parents. And uh, I always went down there and recognized them and waved up to them before each game. And uh, just like later on at Butler, they were always in the front row out there when the gate opened, you know, they were the same way at Broad Ripple. But uh, the the atmosphere out there at a, a basketball game was just tremendous uh, at Broderpool High School. And uh, the players that came out there, uh, we had we had a lot of good players that, that came out there because they wanted to go to Broderpool because uh, it was the far north side school on a shortage. If you lived if you lived north of the Mile Square, you wanted to come out there because there was no Arlington, there was no Chittard, uh, no North Central. Uh, so those those schools didn't attract anybody, and Shortridge Broderpool got all those athletes on the north side of town. So the Broderpool atmosphere out there and uh, the competition with Shortridge was, I don't know how it was in the 80s, but back there in the 50s, Billy, the competition between the two north side schools, Shortridge and Broderpool, was really something else. It was exciting. <laughs> and sometimes the football game got a little bit too exciting. And there was one big, uh, I think in 1953, the Shortridge-Broderpool football game, man, let me tell you, there was a big fight down there at Shortridge's uh, football field called the Dust Bowl down there by Butler. <laughs> it was a hair-raising fight. Fortunately, I stayed up in the top row where I was seated. I didn't go down and get inside of it. Boy, they, they had a lot of uh, meetings in uh, the dean's offices at Shortridge and Broderpool, and a few boys got suspended for a while. <laughs> I wasn't in that, fortunately. So that was the excitement there. Uh, Wally, what you 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 you're the freshman on campus at Butler University, and you're getting ready to play freshman basketball because you know you had to wait till your sophomore year to play uh, a varsity or play on the big squad. What, uh, did you think you'd made a mistake? Were you were you did you think you'd made the the right choice? Uh, and uh, tell us a little bit about tell us a little bit about freshman basketball at Butler. Well, okay, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna correct your uh, your memory here just a little bit, Billy. When I was a freshman, and Bobby Plump was a freshman, and Ted Guzik, we were the three main recruits. We went to Butler. Freshmen were eligible. Oh, wow. Yeah. I led the varsity in scoring my freshman year. Shame on me. (laughs) Well, that's okay. Hey, you weren't even a fertilized egg cell then, were you? I wasn't even a twinkle. Well, that's right. You probably weren't even a thought. But anyway, oh, yeah, freshmen were eligible. And I set the scoring record uh, for freshmen on the varsity at Broderpool that year, at uh, Butler, coming in from Broderpool. I was eligible. So was Plump. 
so was Ted Gizzi. So was uh, Kenny Pennington was two years behind us. Uh, but uh, now, when Bill Scott came into college, he went to Franklin first before he came to Butler. He transferred to Butler. Right. But freshmen were not eligible. The following year, freshmen were not eligible. All the guys came into Butler uh, in uh, 1955, starting in the fall of 55. They had to play freshman ball in the same way down at IU. All those guys, uh, Gary Long, and I could tell you all those guys that went down to IU the following years, they were not eligible as freshmen. But I was eligible. So I said, I led the team in scoring when I was a freshman. Ted Guzik led Butler in scoring when we were sophomores. And Plump led the team in scoring our junior and senior years. <laughs> so... Yeah, that's uh, that's the history there on that. So uh, now you can correct it with a pencil. <laughs> well, I actually just corrected it with a pen so that I'll remember it. Um, well, yeah. The, the, so, so when why did they change that? And then, uh, of course, I guess that went on through what 1973. What was the what was the what was behind that? And and freshmen not being able to play. So you got lucky getting well, in there, being able to play right off the bat. Uh, well, I I don't know for sure. I've heard. I've heard one, two, three different, uh, maybe more reasons why. Who knows what the IHSA was thinking and what the NCAA was thinking and what it means to kids to go to college. I think the, the one I buy into, this, the, the one I think makes the most sense was they wanted to make sure that academically – uh, kids would go into college and study and become students first and then athletes secondary. Well, that makes a little bit of sense to me because I think today, in today's market of scholar-athletes, <laughs> I think it's basketball, uh, baseball, it's athletics first, academic second and of course with the one and done rule I think it makes a lot of sense that a lot of kids are not even thinking about the academic side of a basketball decision on where to go to school uh, it's uh, who's got the best basketball reputation for my one and done those particular guys and uh, so you know and I read today I just read the Indianapolis Star this morning I think uh, there's three players that I can see from Michigan State, Purdue, and Indiana that are coming back from the NBA draft, mm -hmm. uh, that period of time where you can go in there and measure whether they think they would be draft choices or not. Right. You know what I'm talking about. Well, right. they just announced today uh, three big ones returning to school at Michigan State, Purdue, and Indiana. So those guys, to me, you know, here it is. If they were, if they could play basketball, they'd get the heck out of school right now. But they didn't get the go sign from the NBA. So, okay, I'm going to go back to school. You know, that kind of attitude. And uh, so I think, going back to what you asked, I really think the reason they changed the rule was they wanted to make sure kids came to school for the education first 
it was an educational institute you're going to. And then athletics comes second. But that's that's the way I look at it, too. Uh, was Wally Cox ever in the Hinkle doghouse, and how did you get out of the doghouse? <laughs> you know what? I, uh, I, I suppose... Ah, doghouse, doghouse. I, I don't know. I don't think so. I, I think the biggest doghouse I can remember uh, was Ted Guzik and Plump and I. Of course, we were playing basketball for Hinkle, and we were expected to, you know, set some leadership and do this and that and so on. And uh, one day we were at practice. Guzik got in the doghouse. Here's the way he did. He had scored something like we played Notre Dame, and I I can't remember for sure, but I think Guzik had 35, and Tom Hawkins I think it was had 37, and Guzik, uh, Hawkins was Guzik's man. <laughs> Hinkle tells at the next practice the next day he calls Guzik over and says, "You know what, Guzik, you had 35. That was good." But your man had 37. Get the hell down there at the other end. I'm going to teach you how to guard somebody. <laughs> so <laughs> down they went to the other end. And at Butler, you've got a goose. We call it the gooseneck. The big pipe comes out the floor, and then it extends out about 20 feet, and the backboard is mounted on there. And it's it's a great – we set the pace. Butler set the pace on uh, architecture back then on basketball courts. And so you could go in for a layup, and a guy could, you know, undercut you or deck you, and you wouldn't hit the the support thing down at the end because it was so far back, away from the back. Well, anyway, he had Guzik go down there at the end. And he and uh, Bob Deets, the assistant coach out there, they went down there, and, and I was watching and because uh, our half-court practice at the other end of the floor came to a halt as he took Guzik down to that gooseneck. And Guzik stood there, and he said, now, Ted, get this hand up here and this hand out here. Spread your legs out, and you get in this position here where you can laterally go left, go right, go left, go right, and guard your man. So anyway, he put Guzik on there. He said, if you can't guard this post, <laughs> then you're probably not going to be able to guard a guy on the move. So anyway, he had Guzik to do, go uh, through this routine and uh, get that stance and all. And then he turns around and walks at the other end of the floor, Hinkle does, along with these. And we resumed our half-court practice down there. And here's Guzik down there at the other end guarding that post. See? <laughs> well, Deets finally comes over, Mr. Deets comes over to Mr. Hinkle and says, uh, and I'm standing right there because Plump and I are running on the half-court practice down there. And uh, he comes over and says, uh, Coach, he said, uh, did you remember Guzik's down there at the end? Now, this is after about five minutes or ten minutes. He said, all right, go down there and tell him to get the hell down here. Hinkle didn't, he never used four-letter words very often. But when when it counted, (laughs) he would use something like, tell him to get the hell down there, you know. So anyway, Deets went down to the other floor and fetched Guzik. And then he came down, and he said, well, I hope you know how to guard somebody now a little bit better than you did the other night. (laughs) So anyway... Practice resumed, but that was the doghouse for Guzik. Other than that, Guzik didn't get in many doghouses just because he was not going. He was good. <laughs> it's pretty hard. To, it's pretty hard to critique somebody like a good player like him. You know, 
And just like Plump, I don't recall Plump getting his butt chewed out very often. <laughs> so anyway, that that was that. And I was somehow or other able to avoid that. But you didn't really know by by the name that he gave you. Because when you were a freshman, you were a kid. That's Hinkle's way of recognizing you. You were, you were a kid. And then your sophomore year, you might be, well, like in my case, hey, Broad Ripple, get down here. <laughs> or, hey, Mylon, get over here. And then your third year, uh, he might make, uh, uh, you know, address you in a, a combination way with either one of those things. And then one day when we were seniors, uh, we were practicing, and uh, I was going down at one end of the court working on uh, offense and the defense at the other end, so on and so forth. Plump and I were standing there, and uh, Mr. Henkel says, uh, Hey, Wally, get down here. And I looked over. I looked over at Plump and I said, Is he talking to me? (laughs) (laughs) Plump knows what I'm talking about. Uh, You had to sort of earn your colors as you went through the Butler program with uh, your named address, you know. You sort of had to wait your turn. But uh, if you were a prima donna like Plump, once in a while he called him. Bobby, you know, and so I mean, as a junior, because Plump was kind of the leader of the group here. <laughs> and I teased Plump all the time, too. I said, you know what, Plump? If you'd have taken the ball out of bounds more often, I'd have probably let the team in scoring when we were seniors instead of you. But that, that's, one of, that's, one of our, that's one of our jokes. And then another thing that Hinkle did that Plump will remember is we'd run fast breaks. And, of course, you know now look for me in the corner for this three-point shot. You know, when they run three on two fast breaks now, half the time they throw it over for the three instead of taking it onto the hoop. So back then I used to, I said to Hank, because I like to shoot outside. I'd say uh, on one huddle, I came over to Hank and I said, geez, coach, I said, look for me in the corner on the fast break. Well, I lived with that for the rest of my life. In fact, Hank, Plump even refers to what Hinkle said in that uh, huddle clear back then because I was known for running to the corner to get open for that uh, long shot because I was always open for it. (laughs) And he wanted us to run it on into the hoop all the time. Uh, So that was was a doghouse for me. (laughs) When when you left Butler uh, and um, a few years later, did you continue to have a relationship with Coach Hinkle? Oh, absolutely. When I uh, when I first when I first graduated, it started right then. I went into his office in that September October. I went in and to Mr. Hinkle's office, and I walked in there and I took a ten dollar bill and I laid it down on his desk. I said, Mr. Hinkle, I'm. Uh, appreciative of the education he gave me, Kurt Butler, and I'm here to buy my first season ticket. Well, he said, well, sit down. So I sat down there, and he took my $10 bill, <laughs> and he took a little piece of paper and wrote on there, Wally Cox, season ticket, Paul D. Hinkle, and handed me this little, about the size of a business card, okay? And that was my season ticket, handwritten. And so we started talking, and uh, I told him, you know, how much I appreciated uh, the education and everything he did for me. And he said, well, how are you doing there? Are you making some money? And blah, 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 blah. And I was selling insurance. And Plump 
uh, later went into insurance, but he was with Phillips Oil first. But anyway, I was selling insurance, and I was doing pretty well. And I said, well, I'm doing pretty well, Coach, and thanks to you, uh, uh, I'm able to get by. And uh, so anyway, thanks again. And we, he said, well, go sit here and talk to me. He said, uh, now, well, as you go along, blah, 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 blah. And we we just jawed and jawed for 45 minutes or an hour. And now and I've graduated, okay? But he's sitting there with me, taking his time to talk to me. And I was, I felt like a million dollars, you know, here, my old coach taking that much time with me. And uh, so anyway, I got up and we shook hands and kind of hugged each other a little, patted each other on the shoulder, and out I went, okay? Well, about the season before last at Butler, Greg Doyle, I don't know if you know Greg or not, he writes for the Annapolis Star. Right. Okay, well, Greg Doyle did an article on me about you know, five or six months ago, spread all over the sports page and all, and I had a bunch of people calling on. Well, anyway, in that article, or in the conversation that was aired, uh, some old guy came up to me out of Butler, and he said, Wally, I bought a season ticket in 1958. And he said, it was $8. I said, what? <laughs> I stood there right in Butler Field House. I looked up at the sky and pointed with this guy, and I said, Mr. Hinkle, you owe me two bucks. <laughs> well, Mr. Hinkle was an honest man, okay? And I was kind of absent-minded, as I am today, but uh, I attribute it to being age 82 now, but I was just naturally absent-minded back then. Well, I walked out without my change. I was supposed to get $2 change. Hinkle <laughs> forgot to give it to me, and I forgot to ask for it. So anyway, my season ticket cost me 10 bucks, and this guy only paid 8 see? Now, with that $10 season ticket, I could sit, well, $8 season ticket, I could sit in the front row, I could sit up there where Charlie Henzey, the band director, was, and, and sit with the band, or I could go up uh, to the Crow's Nest, I could find a friend over there in the other balcony, or the front row on the other side. I could go anywhere in Hinkle Field House for eight bucks. Well, I've got a season ticket now, and I just got my uh, letter in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> my season ticket this year is a thousand dollars. Now that's a, that's inflation. <laughs> and I'm sitting in the front row. Okay, I'm front row center. My whole family, me and my wife, my daughter. My son-in-law and my two of my granddaughters, or whoever, whatever friends they bring, we've got six front row center seats down there, and I'm not going to give them up. I keep breaking my piggy bank every year. Now uh, the prices are up. I have to, you know, throw money in my little kitty, and at the end of the year, I take it out and go out and buy my season tickets. <laughs> so that's what's going on. And, and how many years in a row have you had season tickets? 1958 to yeah. today. The only the only reason I didn't the only time I didn't buy a season ticket all those years that you know the progressive time and all. Even when I was coaching middle school and all, all those uh, years that I coached and taught middle school, uh, even all those years when I couldn't make games, I still had a season ticket. But uh, the season ticket situation now, you get credit for 
how long you've had it. See, they don't even they didn't even have records back to 1958. The only records they have at Butler is starting in I think it's 1987 to the present. So if you've had a season ticket stretched through there, that's what I've gotten credit for. See, and one of those years they missed because <clears throat> when I was president of the Butler Beemans Association, the Letterman's Association, mm -hmm. one year. Uh, the athletic director gave me a season ticket. I, you know, I wasn't thinking about keeping a streak going and buying a ticket. Uh, Tom Warner uh, gave me a season ticket because I worked on the first basketball uh, press book for him out there. And we put together a little press book to hand out to the media when they came to, to ball games and stuff. If they hadn't had anything organized. It was just type, type stuff mimeographed on a machine and handed out, you know, that way back in the old days. So uh, that's the season ticket uh, history there, dating back to when Mr. Hinkle shortchanged me. And, and when and when a Coach Hinkle shortchanged you, do, do you still have that first thing that he wrote for you? Oh, don't I wish I did. Wow. Can you imagine what that little piece of paper would be worth today to some guy that wants that old paraphernalia from Butler? I could probably get uh, thirty or forty bucks for that. <laughs> maybe maybe a thousand. You know, I always thought that the uh uh Butler basketball floor gave a a jump shot or gave a someone getting a rebound a couple more inches. Would do do you agree with that or did you feel that way with the basketball floor? Oh, that basketball. These the same boards are still out there today, Billy. Yeah. The same boards. They shorten and uh, and lengthen that floor the same way. Each there's a section. Uh, they're like eight by twelve sections, and in between each section, they have like a uh, not but uh, almost like a two by four that runs the width of that section floor, and they're all screwed down in the floor. And then when they want to shorten the floor, they pull out those dividers and take out sections and uh, for the high school games uh, they bring the gooseneck in closer and that shortens the floor okay so the boards and all that floor out there has a resiliency to it I played on there well when I was a broader I played three years of sections out there right. and I played four years out there for Butler I would never did I have a shin splint at Butler from all the practicing and all the games, all that, never, because it had a little bit of resiliency. And yes, to answer your question, I really think it was easier on your legs and you could actually get a little extra spring off of them. And uh, even today, uh, I, I think I see the same thing. I go to some of these gyms and stuff that are laid on hard floors. They put the hardwood over that. Uh, the overlay and so on and some of these floors are tough on kids legs and stuff And but Butler has always had this cushioning the floors built up as you probably know it's up about a foot or so off of the concrete floor and it's it's bouncy we went to NIT in New York in 1958 and I was disappointed in the Madison Square Garden out there now it's different now they got a new Madison Square Garden but back then, that was supposed to be such a, a great place to play ball. And it was atmospherically. It was fabulous to go to play in the Madison Square Garden. However, 
The floor had dead spots. You'd dribble the ball one place, the ball would come up. The other, the next bounce, it might not come up quite so high. So it was not the floor the buffer was. And uh, so, you know, that to answer your question, yeah, I think it does have a r- little bit more bounce to it. Bounce to the ounce at Butler. Fabulous floor. Did you have the opportunity to continue playing basketball once graduating from Butler, or uh, what? What was your kind of mindset coming out of Butler? You know, I played basketball and I played baseball for so many years. What? What do I do? What do I do with my degree? Do I? You know, was there an opportunity to play ball? Well, Plump, for example, uh, back then there was the AAU and the Industrial Basketball League, which included teams like. Uh, Bartlesville, Oklahoma, Phillips 66, who Plump worked with. Denver Truckers out west. The Washington Buchan Bakers uh, up in Washington. The Goodyear Tires over in Ohio. The Wingfoots. Uh, these, yeah, these were all, uh, these were all prolific uh, AAU industrial teams. Plump went to work for Phillips 66. He actually went to work for Phillips 66, but he played basketball on the basketball team called the Phillips uh, Phillips 66 Oilers. And Plump was on that team, and during the basketball season, you know, uh, on uh, they practiced down at Eric Bartlesville, but uh, then he'd go in the office, you know, for a short time during the season, but then when the season was over, then he worked his regular job and as uh, a representative for Phillips 66 Oil. And Denver truckers were the same way, Goodyear tire guys and so on. I went down, and I did not have a job with them. I sold insurance here in Indianapolis, and I didn't want to leave town uh, to do any of that stuff. But I went down and played with uh, Marion K. Products down in Brownstown, Indiana. Guy named Bill Summer was a wealthy uh, industrialist down there. He had the oh, it was a um, he made salt shakers, pepper shakers, and they went out to all the restaurants and so on throughout the country, and uh, vanilla products and that kind of stuff. And so I went down and played with uh, with him down at uh, Brownstown, Indiana. We were called Marion K. And so we played in those tournaments with those teams, and the armed services had teams too. The U.S. Army team and the Navy had a team, the Air Force. And once a year out in Denver, we'd get together for the annual big AAU industrial tournament. So that was big because the NBA back then was jumping around. they had been the inner. They they had been the National Basketball League, the NBL, and then they were converting into NBA, and it was kind of a slow start uh, here in Indiana. They jumped around. If you ever read the history of the professional basketball here, it's very very interesting uh, the way they jumped around here in Indianapolis trying to settle into uh, a professional team, and so the professional. Basketball opportunities then were kind of, kind of different. If you get a chance, have you ever read the book Pioneers of the Hardwood? Yes, I have. Fantastic, and there's also a DVD. Also, that's, that's really good stuff. Yeah, Todd uh, Todd Gould, I think, was the guy's name that wrote it, wasn't it? 
yes. G-O-U-L-D or something like that. I don't know him personally, but he did a great job on that. Well, if you if you recall some of that, it was uh, uh, professional basketball was in and out and in and out. Buckshot O'Brien out at Butler uh, played in that for a short time. And uh, the early years of the NBA. But uh, anyway, that's kind of the way that, that all happened. Uh, so, so it, it, give us a little bit about your career post post Butler. I mean, you you coached for a while. Did you yeah. have the opportunity to coach uh, any high school, or did you just like what you did? Yeah. Well, when I got out of college at Butler, okay, I I I was an education major. I majored in secondary ed. I had a major in health sciences and phys ed, and I had a minor in English and biology. So I was pretty employable on the education market. I also had a, a license to teach driver's ed, so I had five areas I could teach in. So I had about a dozen job offers oh, from Columbus, uh, North Jennings down there, North Vernon, over to Evansville, up there. I had all kinds of opportunities for teaching uh, coaching jobs. And uh, the one down, I almost took the one down at... Uh, North Vernon down by uh, Columbus because oh it was big money give you an idea $3,900 to start $3,000 extra 3000 extra in the summer if I ran the six week basketball program at the city park $6,900 $6, to start and that was in 1958 and by gosh, that was one of the premier jobs. I mean, that was really good. If you talk to some of those guys that went into coaching back then, they look at their old contract. It's really funny. My wife's first teaching contract at Southport, I think her first teaching contract in 1960 was like $9,000. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, all of that stuff, uh, I decided... Uh, I got recruited by two or three insurance companies. I interviewed with F.C. Tucker, real estate company here. And I decided to go in the life insurance business. <clears throat> and uh, so I sold insurance. And, boy, it was it was good to me. I was, I was making some pretty good money. But uh, when I was 35, <clears throat> my wife was a school teacher. I was coaching my kids as much as I could because I was – going out hustling insurance almost every night. And they were, you know, they were getting up to playing basketball. My daughter was a heck of a basketball player. My son was good. And they were starting to get pretty good and all, and I wasn't able to coach them. Well, I decided I talked to my wife, and I said, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, substitute teach for a while and see how I like it. Well, I substitute taught and kept, kept my insurance agency. But I went and substituted at Center Grove and Southport for a year, and I loved it. And uh, so anyway, the uh, just so happened, again, right place, right time, they came to me at Southport and said, okay, you've been subbing. We got a job opening over here at the middle school, and you said something about you didn't want high school. And uh, so anyway, I took over at the uh, middle school, uh, which is Southport Middle School today, and uh, I went in there and taught school and coached and just loved it. And so I was at the same school 
doing the same thing day after day with all the kids that I've I loved these kids. Uh, I mean, that's great memories. I was doing what uh, so many coaches did for me when I was young. So I did that for almost 30 years, 28 and a half years, and my wife taught for 30 years. And so that was uh, that was what I did. And my basketball, I kept playing. Uh, after I played AAU with Brownstown down there through the years, <clears throat> when I was 50, I started playing senior AAU. And we won a two national championship seniors in basketball, and I played till I was 75. And uh, so when I lost my jump shot at 75, a guy <laughs> named Al Bar Al Barkas uh, played for Indiana State. He was a year younger than I was. He's an advertiser in Chicago. I don't know if you've ever heard this uh, rattle, rattle, thunder clatter, boom, boom, boom. Yes. Don't worry, see your car accident. Well. Anyway, he did, he did that commercial. Uh, he wrote it, and uh, that was part of it. He's in public relations and advertising up there. Well, anyway, Al and I, uh, after I had played for two national champions from Colorado and uh, another one from uh, Nebraska, senior champions over when I was 60 and another one when I was 65 and so on, um, <laughs> Al and I, he called me and said, we got a heck of a team here in Chicago, Wally. We're going to play in the National down in, in uh, Florida this year, like you're down there every year. But have you hooked up with the team yet? And I said, no, Indiana doesn't have a team this year. He said, well, once you have a team, we got uh, some great players. So anyway, we had two six nine guys. Al and I were going to play the guard posts and so on. So we went down. I flew to Florida to meet Al and the team. <laughs> Listen, now, I'm 75, okay? This was seven years ago. So I went down there to try to play this young guy's game with a bunch of old coots that think they can still play, you know. And I told Al, we were out there shooting baskets the first morning we met. And we're out there warming up and getting ready for the tournament to start the next day. <coughs> and I said to Al, I said, Al, watch me shoot this jump shot, and you tell me what you think's wrong. Well, I knew darn good and well what was wrong, you know. But I wanted to get Al's opinion. So I started shooting a few jumpers and, and all. And I went over to him. He's just standing there laughing. <laughs> he said, Cox, you got the same problem I got. He says, you go up for your jump shot. You come down. Your feet hit the floor before you release the ball. <laughs> <laughs> he said, watch me shoot. So I watched Al shoot. He said, see, I don't have any vertical anymore either. He said, I can't dunk. I can't do anything. But he said, I still got that savvy, though. He does. He, yeah, but he was he was just a natural player. So he and I were supposed to be the guards. He said, now, Wally, I got some bad news. He said, the guys uh, up in Chicago are flying down. But he said, we've lost our two six nine guys. They both got hurt last week in practice up in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> now, can you imagine a couple of guys? This was 70 and over division we were playing. And we were in, I was 75 and Al was 74, but we're playing in the 70 and over division. And can you imagine two guys, 6'9, not being able to show up for a tournament because they're in? So, anyway, he said, but the, the good news is you get to play the post. I said, what? He said, yeah, you're the biggest guy we got. Oh, shit. So I played the post. Well, what a week that was. I got banged around by these 6'10", 6'11 guys that were 
old coots like me, but they weighed like 250 and 275. I'm a, I'm still 185. I've weighed this for 40 years, I guess. So anyway, but we got beat by the team that won it. And uh, so we had a good tournament, but that was uh, my farewell to that. And I played senior softball two more years. I kept play, traveling the country playing on a senior softball team until I was 77. So uh, that, that's my, those were my swan songs. I'm 82 now. And uh, I don't uh, I don't compete. I got a full length basketball court out here in my uh, driveway between me and my daughter's house. <laughs> but uh, I shoot a few with the guys, and they try to sucker me into a game once in a while out down the court. And I said, "No way, guys! I can't afford a bad knee." Did you well, did, anyway? That did, did you play uh, softball with uh, Roger Schroeder? He uh, was on that Milan '54 team, if I'm not mistaken. Oh yeah, Roger and I played for about twenty years together. Okay, I was on the same softball team uh, out of Shelbyville, Indiana, <clears throat> and uh, he he played with a bunch of his kids that he coached over at Marshall yeah. High School. He played softball in the league out here on the east side of Indianapolis. I didn't play on his team in that league. We played against each other. I played on a on another team, and so we played against each other out in that league. Then we played together on the team. Uh, we played together on team for well, probably fifteen years at least. Maybe it might be twenty. And uh, so, yeah, Roger Schroeder, good guy and good coach. And uh, he's he. Uh, we never ran around together, or drank a beer together. Uh, Roger probably wouldn't drink a beer anyway. <laughs> a lot of times. We'd when we go out to the, you know, after your softball game's over, the big thing, you go to the parking lot, don't uh, uh, sit down in the, your chairs and have a cold beer. And uh, Roger would be there, but uh, he'd usually be drinking pop or something. <laughs> or lemonade. <laughs> <laughs> Wally Cox, what a, what a fabulous life with the game of basketball. I, I, I'm assuming you wouldn't change anything. <laughs> No, uh, the only thing I'd change would be if I could have pursued my career in singing because I've sung in quartets for, well, I'm still singing in a, in a barbershop chorus. Uh, and then I sang in a big band quartet out of college for 10 years. Uh, we sang a lot of four freshman stuff. Four freshmen went to Butler. And they did a lot of recordings back in the old days. They were a pretty famous quartet. Anyway, we sang a lot of their stuff, the quartet I was in here. And we were the Fidels for 10 years. And then I uh, sang Southern Gospel. I never thought I'd be singing religious stuff, but I sang Southern Gospel for <laughs> about 14 years. And now I'm singing Barbershop. So uh, vocal music started when I was with my mom down there, downtown Indianapolis. She was a ragtime piano player. And I went, uh, when I was five years old, six years old, seven, I used to go to all the taverns with her where she was playing the piano. And, making 20 bucks a night or whatever, big money because everybody wanted her. And I used to go with her and we'd sing duets. And then piano bars came in and we were the forerunners of piano bars in Indianapolis. And so vocal music meant a lot to me too. So between that and sports, I don't know how I had time to work. <laughs> <laughs> but life, is, life has been good, Billy. 
Well, Wally Cox, thank you so much. I appreciate it. We, we ran a little bit long. I, I'm pretty sure everybody's going to enjoy the uh, interview. I thank you so much for your time and uh, uh, appreciate it. Okay, Billy. Good to talk to you. Do it again sometime.